Uh, our message this morning will be from the book of 1 Kings, the second chapter. The first 12 verses, though, primarily dealing with a couple. We're going to breeze through those 12, but we're going to come back to just a couple of verses. So if you want to be fine in that place, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. But before we get there, uh, today is September 13th. That means this coming Friday is September 18th. Does that date mean anything to anyone? Yeah, four years ago, on September 18th, 2011, uh, many of us that are here today gathered at 119 West Camden, Wyoming Avenue for the first time as Three Stones Church. And so next Sunday will be the closest Sunday to our anniversary, but it's so exciting I wanted to mention it twice. I've been uh, each week kind of opening with something that is... Uh, relative to the message, but it comes from a resource that I think is good for you to know about. And today I want to mention a book. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Has anyone here read Knowing God by J.I. Packer? Mark Dever said that was the greatest book written in the 20th century. So you might consider checking out Knowing God. And it's not the only thing Packer wrote, but it is a powerful book. He asks a question you might want to write this down. This is really good. He asked the question, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? He goes on to say that the rule for doing this is simple but demanding. This is how it goes. We turn each truth that we learn about God, into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? We turn each truth we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So, so what truths? What are some truths that we know about God that we could, we could do this with? Well, God wants a relationship with you. He has a purpose for your life. It's true that God can meet all your needs. It's true that God has forgiven you and enables you to forgive others. It's true that God will help you to do what is right. It's true that God will help protect you from evil, that he'll never leave you or forsake you, and that he sent his son to rescue you. So that's things we know about God. That's knowledge. And we might even change knowledge to wisdom here. You, you know, I may have said this before, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Your knowledge is stuff you know, right? Like a tomato is really a fruit. That's knowledge. Wisdom is not using tomatoes in fruit salad. Okay? So... Wisdom is applying the things that we know. So we take these truths that we know about God and we meditate on them before God. We go before God bringing these things that we know to be true, but wow, do we apply them in our lives? Do we live as forgiven people who forgive others? 
Are we certain that God provides for our needs? Do we know that God is really always with us? We know that the Bible says that, but is it true in our lives? Well, we take these things before God and we, we meditate on them. We, we ask him about them. We talk to others about them. We, we dig into scripture and read about those things. And it works. And it will lead us to pray to God, praising him for those truths in our life. And that's good for us. But it also helps us to take the step that is what makes this relative to our message this morning. It helps us help others learn. It helps us teach and disciple others. Some passages of Scripture are great and wide and broad. God breathing out light. God sweeping out his hand and casting the stars and planets into space. God taking that same hand and forming the first man. Or opening the floodgates to cover the earth. Or opening the Red Sea. Broad, sweeping stories. But other moments are just as great historically, but they're set on a much smaller stage. We sometimes get very intimate insight when we see the angel visit Mary. Or when we hear, as we will today's passage, a dying man gathering his strength for the final words to his son. We close Sunday morning services with a blessing and with a benediction. And if you've been around me much, you know that I like roots of words. Benediction is an easy one, right? Bene means good or well, like in beneficial or benefit. And diction means words, so benediction means good words, right? Good words. Be hard-pressed to find better words to speak to someone than those we see David share with his son Solomon. Most commentators put Solomon at this time when he was about to take the throne at somewhere between 14 and 18 years old. And David, about to die, brings Solomon in, gathers his strength, and gives him instruction. Almighty God, as we open your word this morning, we thank you for availability, the availability that we have to open your word, to publicly share it, proclaim it, discuss it, learn about it. And as we're thankful for the ease in which we can get a Bible open it here, we do lift up those around the world who do not have that luxury. So may we consider it luxury beautiful, wonderful, amazing. And may we do all in our power to get your word into the hands of those who do not have it. Lord, we also lift up the churches in our community who are meeting also this morning, and we ask that your word be faithfully preached, that it be faithfully heard and faithfully obeyed. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. 
When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, and how he dealt with two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also your, with you, Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went through Manheim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do. You ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And at that time, the day David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Over the last several weeks, we've taken a rather cursory look at the life of David. I think we could spend much, much time studying and learning about David, this shepherd boy who became a king. I say cursory because there's much, much more to the life of this man who was after God's own heart. But we have talked about things that are vital to understanding the life of David and what his life means to us. Most importantly, David kept and brought the line that led to our Savior. All the events in David's life, his anointing as king, his victory over Goliath, his many military victories, his ascension to the throne. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about his default position before God that for the most of the early part of his life when he was being chased through the wilderness, when he was under the threat of death, that he put himself always before God. But then he forgot that position and allowed great sin to enter his life. But all these events brought David to the same place that all the events of our lives are going to bring us, eventually to death. So chapter 2 begins with David calling his son in to give him his last words. In verse 2, he says he is going the way of all the earth. And that's a euphemism for death. And I'm sure there was sadness in Solomon's heart because his father was dying. I'm sure there was sadness in David's heart because he was dying, but I think for David there was more sadness even than that because he was a man after God's own heart. 
He did understand the impact of sin in the world, that the only reason death even exists in the world is because of sin. Do you remember what David wrote in Psalm 51? My sin is always before me. So even as he sat to give these final words to Solomon, his sin with Bathsheba was there before him. And he knew full well that sin gives birth to death. So let's look kind of like I say briefly through uh, some of these verses and then come back to 2 and 3. In verse 4, David relates God's promise to keep the house of David on the throne of Israel as long as they obey God's laws. Verses 5 through 9 tells Solomon how to deal with certain of David's foes and certain of his friends, people who had shown kindness to him and people who had shown evil to him. And he wants Solomon to treat them accordingly. And then in verse 10, at the age of 70, David dies. Verse 11 just tells us the length of time that he reigned. In verse 12, we see the promise that Solomon takes the throne. Another of David's older sons had attempted to take the throne, but seeds it as he knows that this was promised by God to Solomon. Like I said, primarily I want to look at the second half of verse 2, In verse 3. And in these verses, I want to make a few points or ask a few questions. Maybe have you ask them of yourself and answer them of yourself as we look at these instructions that David gives to Solomon. What do these instructions offer you? What do these instructions offer our youth and our children? As adults talking to Youth, as David talked to Solomon, what, what did they offer our young people? But David was also talking to the next king. So what did these instructions offer leaders of any kind in church or business or government? What did these instructions offer to them? And then fourthly and lastly, how do these verses show us Jesus and our need for his atoning work on the cross? Well, in verse 2, David says to Solomon, be strong. What did he mean by be strong? I don't think it had anything to do with the muscles of Solomon's arm. David knew strength that was beyond his own strength. David wrote in Psalm 9 that the Lord is his stronghold. In Psalm 10, that God strengthens the heart of the afflicted. In Psalm 18, I love you, my Lord, my strength. It is God who equips me with strength. In Psalm 24, who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty in battle? On and on through the Psalms, David wrote about the strength of God. And he's telling Solomon here to be strong, but to be strong in the Lord. Solomon knew full well 
how David fa uh, failed in his own strength. He was telling him to be strong in the Lord. And then he says, show yourself a man. What does he mean by that? I think he means be the man that God has called you to be. Live the purposes for which God called you. Do like I did for so long in my life. Before things got good for me, I really did do what God called me to do. When things got comfortable, I fell. But I think he's telling Solomon, show yourself a man. Show yourself God's man. Be the one God is calling you to be. For you have a role in this world. You have a purpose in this world. Placed by God. Enabled by God. In verse 3, he goes on to instruct Solomon to keep all of God's commandments, his rules, his statutes, his laws, all of it. He uses all those words. He's cut cover. If God said do it, do it. David learned that keeping God's commandments brings joy in life, brings success in life. But David violently broke those commandments. He knew full well the, the treasure and the pleasure of being obedient. And then he saw what happened when he listened to the lies of the enemy's offer of a different kind of treasure and pleasure. And how even though it brought short-term enjoyment, it brought long-term suffering that extended beyond himself to people he loved, and to people to, for whom God was holding him accountable. But he says, if you will keep those commandments, if you will do what God tells you to do, if you will be obedient, then prosperity will be everywhere you turn and everywhere you go. And eternal prosperity awaits. So this is what David was telling Solomon. Just a few words here. But it really is everything. Be who God is calling you to be. Let the strength of God work in you and be obedient to him. So those were David's instructions for Solomon. What do they mean to you? What do they mean to me? Well, I think they mean basically the same thing, that you're to be strong. But your only strength comes from God. When I am weak, he is strong. Human strength will fail. We will, as David did, go the way of the earth. But God is our rock. He is strong and mighty in battle. And so if you let the strength of God work in us, then indeed greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And what does it mean to us to show ourselves a man or to show ourselves a woman? Well, I think it means the same thing, to be that which God has called you to be. There is a calling on every person's life in this room. None of us probably to be king of Israel. But something vital to God's work. It's not just what you do here in church. Matter of fact, this may be a very small part of it. Our life 
And Christ is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is no holiday in the Christian life. You don't get a break from the Christian life. And that's really, really good news because that means God doesn't take a break from you either. So we're not to settle for the cheap promises from the enemy. But we're to be the men, the women, the young people that God has called us to be. And we are to follow his laws. Not to be saved. We don't get saved. We're not rescued because of all the good stuff we do. But in response to our rescue, in response to our salvation, are we not to live out the law of God? Are we not to show through our obedience who Christ is to others around us? If we do, prosperity awaits at every turn. I probably don't need to say this, but I, but I will say it. Prosperity doesn't mean money. No, it may for some, but this is not the promise of God. But the promises of the storeholds full of blessings in the kingdom of God being poured out upon you. That prosperity, that eternal prosperity that awaits if you're obedient. That harmony with God that awaits if you're obedient. That joy that awaits if you're obedient. That's what these instructions mean for you. It's full time listening to these words and responding. And church, if you want to have a word to our young people, or if you want to have a word to leaders, you have to apply these things to yourself first. You remember that in the story, right? After David sinned with Bathsheba, and Nathan came and told the story about the sheep, how this rich guy had, had treated this other guy unfairly, and David was ready to bring the hammer down until Nathan reminded him that it was him, it was David, who was the abusive, rich, sinful man. He had to apply these things to himself first. But these things do apply, young people, youth, children. It was this same Solomon who later wrote, train up a child in the way he should go. Solomon had his own failures, but he did remember these lessons. And we must remember these lessons. And we must teach our children and teach our youth by first applying these instructions to ourselves and then teaching them. Like it says early on in Scripture, everywhere we go, when we get up as parents, before we lay down, when we're at meals, and any of us who have the privilege of having a young person in our life, in our circle in any way, we have an obligation to God to show them these instructions. And what it means for the rest of their lives. It's oh so difficult to explain some of the hard things in scripture to someone who is first asking these questions when they're 50s and in their 60s 
Oh, maybe they heard some of it before, but they've never tried to apply it, apply it to their life before. And with a lifetime living outside of God's promises, it's very difficult to suddenly see all the nuances and the faithfulness that are in Scripture. It's become accepted that, well, we raise kids in the church and they go off to college and they sow the wild oats and, you know, we hope they come back. Well, they're coming back less and less and less. Church is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. That's why I was so blessed Thursday night to be in a room of adults who love the young people of this church and who are working, spending many of their own hours to help disciple the young people in our church. It's vital that we do what David did. Though the the roles are not the same, it's still vital. Those of us who have this knowledge, that have this wisdom, to transfer it in a way that's meaningful, in a way they can apply it to their lives, to the young people. But first, they have to see that it works in our lives. You want to get called out? Be a hypocrite in front of a 15-year-old. Talk it, but don't walk it. It doesn't work. Oh, we all make mistakes. We all slip up. But there's a difference between slipping up and living a life that is out of the instructions of God. So, church, we have an obligation to our youth, to our children. We have to take every opportunity in every church service, every Bible study, every Sunday school class, every youth group meeting to instruct each other and our young people in the ways of God. So what do these instructions offer leaders, leaders of any kind? Church leaders, pastors, elders, business leaders, government leaders, are these useful for them? I certainly think they are. I think they're useful. I think they're vital for them. The Fellowship of Christian Athletes will tell you that a coach, another type of leader, a coach influences more people in a season than most adults do in a lifetime. Leaders have influence. They will have influence. What kind of influence will they have? As a side note, as we're for better or worse, headed into this political season, we have to consider how we talk about politics and our faith and things in the world. I have opinions on everything. I have opinions on everything, and I think I'm right in all of them. (laughs) You do too, or you would have a different opinion. The thing is, Some things I have researched and studied and and analyzed and I have an informed opinion about. Other opinions I have because it just seems that A is better than B. Or most of the people that think like I do pick A over B. But I could be wrong. But I'm not wrong about the gospel. I'm not wrong about the gospel. Your job may cause you, or there may be other situations that may cause you to have to opine over some political person or event or ideal, ideology, something. 
But I think when we meet people, we need to do a little mental mathematics and say, what does this person need the most? For me to beat them soundly with my political ideology and logic, or do they need to know Jesus? Because in the four mentioned, I could be wrong, but I am not wrong about the gospel. Now, there are things that are talked about in political circles or laws or whatever that, that are biblical issues. That's, that's a little different. I think we stand with the Bible in those issues. But for the most part, goodness, church, go make disciples. It doesn't say go make Democrats. It doesn't say go make Republicans. It doesn't say go make church members. Go make disciples. Go make people who love and follow Jesus. That's being obedient. We have to love the way Jesus loved. The people who were so politically opposed to him that they put him on a cross. And what was his final word about them? Father, forgive them. But if we want to be in a place where we're going to speak into the lives of leaders, then we have to be living out these instructions first. It's important for our leaders. But if we're going to have any integrity, if we're going to have any credence, talking to children or youth or coworkers or parents, or neighbors, or presidential candidates, then we have to know that we are standing firmly, firmly, on the rock that is Jesus Christ. So how do you feel? This is a lot of knowledge about God. All these things, all these instructions, all these ways to apply these things, all these promises from God, this is a lot of knowledge about God. So I'm going to ask you to do this. Take whatever you remembered or written down, take it before God. Meditate on it. Pray about it. Talk to people who love you and love Jesus, and who love Jesus more than they love you, about these things. And it will lead you to praise God. And then, beloved, go ye into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.